Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, normally of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa, but temporarily on loan to Central European University in Budapest. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to talk about one of the flashpoints in the China-Africa relationship. Uh, it's the column mine in the column coal mine in Zambia. Now, for anybody who studied the China-Africa relations over, I'd say, the past five or six years, uh, the column mine has certainly come up because it's been an incident of, uh, there's been instances of human rights allegations, environmental allegations. It's been really a pain for both the Zambian government and the Chinese government. Let me just uh, kind of bring this to the fore today to explain that now, after three years of closure, it's finally reopened again. And this is really a significant event. And so to better understand the importance of this event and why, you know, after three years it finally did reopen, we've kind of touched base with two of the leading scholars on, on, on both Sino-Zambian relations, but specialists on the column mine in specific. Uh, Dr. Barry Saltman is a social science professor at uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. And Yen Hai Rong is an anthropologist in the Department of Applied Social Sciences at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. A very good evening to you both from Hong Kong. Good evening to you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Let me just kind of give our, our, our listeners a little bit of a background before we kind of get into kind of the specifics of why this is a significant event in Sino-Zambian relations. The Column Coal Mine provides, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong at any point here, but it provides a supply of coal to the copper industry in Zambia, which is obviously a very, very important. Zambia is one of the largest copper exporting countries in the world. A lot of that copper is going to China. And now, because this mine is back open again, the Zambian copper mines uh, don't have to spend as much on imported coal. They now can then consume Zambian coal. Uh, you know, the decision from President Edgar Lungu to open up this mine comes one week after he was just in China meeting with Xi Jinping and really seems to highlight a, a warming of the relations between the Zambians and the Chinese. Now, let's remember that this was a very controversial mine going back in 2010 when it first gained international prominence uh, after Chinese managers there opened fire on striking workers and allegedly shot th 13 people. Then later in 2012, rioting miners killed a Chinese supervisor uh, and injured two others during wage protests at the mine. Uh, and then finally, Human Rights Watch zeroed in on this mine and, and said that it is particularly egregious and in some ways represents a kind of a typifies in many ways the, the abuses that Chinese managers and Chinese companies uh, practice in not only Zambia, but much of Africa as well. Both of you have written extensively on this mine. And I guess I'd like to ask you, you know, first, you know, Barry, I'll start with you to get your sense of why do you think President Edgar Lungu, so early in his presidency, is deciding to open up this wound in many respects and take the Band-Aid off? Now, it's they say there's $50 million of new investments. There's going to be 200 badly needed jobs that are recreated here. But why do you think Edgar Lungu is taking the risk to open this mine at this time? Well, one of the reasons is that the mine has now been closed for 26 months. And the Zambian government, at the time that it closed the mine in February of 2013, said that it would continue to pay the salaries of the workers now, there are somewhere between 800 and 1,000 workers, and they've now been paid basically to do nothing 
uh, for the last 26 months. There's a small number of them who are on the staff uh, providing security for the closed-down mine. But most of them, of course, are just there and have to be supported by the government because uh, the Patriotic Front government pledged that it would continue to pay their salaries until it found a buyer for the mine. And then, uh, after it made that pledge, it said it would do everything possible to find a new buyer, a non-Chinese buyer, for the mine, and kept saying that there would be uh, uh, a buyer along any day now. Uh, kept saying that there were lots of companies that were interested in the possibility of reopening this mine. But uh, it seems that that wasn't quite accurate. That is that uh, nothing came through in terms of a new buyer. Uh, and of course, the government wants to secure votes uh, in an area, uh, southern province, where the mine is located, where the principal opposition party has long been dominant. It's really the home base of the UPND, the principal opposition party. So by having the mine be reopened, even if under the same management, the government is relieved of the obligation to continue to pay salaries, and at the same time can be said uh, to have delivered to people in a key part of Southern Province some additional jobs. So uh, there's nothing but upside politically for the government. Of course, it also, as you implied, signals some kind of closer relationship uh, between China and Zambia, even though that mine has never been owned by a Chinese government entity, was always only owned by a private Chinese family. So all those factors come into play. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I was thinking that uh, I'm not sure what might be the political uh, consideration at play here. Um, if what kind of what, what kind of message has been massaged <laughs> it, it, with uh, with the Zambian government? The fact that the owner of the mine, um, some of the owners are Chinese. Some of the own, well, one big owner is actually not Chinese citizen anymore. He's Australian citizen. Uh, so. If this decision was made in consideration of improving bilateral relations, this is probably misplaced um, kind of message, in my view, because when the mine was closed last time, um, as far as we know, the Chinese embassy welcomed it. They genuinely rec welcomed it because the, the mine has been such a trouble and uh, that it's actually the Chinese government officials were pleased to see that the Zambian government is taking it over and nationalizing it. Uh, so it's kind of peculiar um, consideration, in my view, uh, to have it reopened and, uh, and by the same old owner and uh, just before you know, the president went to China. I was, you know, kind of drawing, you know, going further on that line, I was also wondering what the situation is on the owner's side. Because, you know, we, we heard about $50 million worth of investment that's going into into the mine. So I was wondering where that came from, actually, um, and what kind of changes they're planning to make and what the owners, whether you have any idea of what the owners were doing in the meantime, you know, kind of while this mine was closed. Uh, well, uh as I mentioned, 
the mine is owned by a family, five brothers, uh, all surnamed Xu. And um, the principal owner uh, has been this Australian Chinese Xu, uh, whose family lives in Australia. He has businesses there, but he also has several businesses uh, in Zambia apart from the mine. One of his businesses is a construction company called, uh, in English, Yang Sejiang. And uh, that construction company has been around for a long time. Uh, Mr. Xu has been in Zambia since the early 1990s. And uh, he built the construction company into a fairly uh, prosperous concern. It's obtained a lot of government contracts. And uh, I think probably the principal source of his finances uh, has been that construction company. But he also owns additional businesses. And when his uh, brothers came um, to each manage one shaft in the mine, uh, they each invested five million U.S. dollars. So they too must have some money derived from their home base in Jiangxi Province. Uh, so I would imagine that the money that is going to uh, be invested to supposedly uh, make things different at the mine from what they were before is money largely derived from the Shu uh, family fortune. Now, the mine is important for me. You know, the, the rest of you are all academics who immerse yourself in this very deeply. But as, as an outside observer here, I find the mine very interesting in part because when Western journalists do their stories on China-Africa and they assign some guy you know, in London or Paris or New York to kind of fly to, to some African country and, and, and talk about the Chinese. Invariably, they talk about Sanusi Lumido, the former Nigerian Central Bank governor, and his neocolonialism comments in the FT from a couple years ago. And invariably, a quote from Michael Sada comes up from the early days, uh, the former Zambian president, and then the column mine. So this is really a case study uh, for, for Western journalists and the Western narrative about the Chinese in Africa uh, that kind of highlights exploitation, it highlights poor management, it highlights all the worst things about the Chinese in Africa. Now, you too have been very articulate in challenging these narratives. Uh, in particular, Human Rights Watch came out with a report on the mine that you wrote a very, very detailed rebuttal to alleging that not only is the mine not as bad and poorly run as Human Rights Watch alleges, but it's really at, at about the same level as, if I recall correctly, as other international operated mines there. And then in 2014, last year, you wrote uh, a paper, you jointly wrote a paper, bashing the Chinese, contextualizing Zambia's column coal mine shooting. Uh, and there you wrote a line that, that Hyrong, I'd like you to kind of explain. You said, quote, on Chinese mining in Zambia, the debate is clearly informed by racist assumptions embedded in racial hierarchy. I'd like you to explain that line and what the role of race as it pertains to this mine and if that informs some of this biased reporting by either human rights watch, human rights groups and the media. Mm. Um, well, I think... Uh what we are seeing in the case of coal mine is not so much about you know the Chineseness um, of the bad practice. It's actually a case of neoliberalism, which is in this case practiced by Chinese owners. Um, you know, even though one of them is ethnic Chinese, uh, Human Rights Watch um, 
report uh, is actually not about this mine per se. Uh, Human Rights Watch had written about um, Chinese copper mines, and those are owned by state-owned enterprises. Ah, okay. Column coal My mine, mistake there. Yeah, Column Coal Mine, though, is a privately owned um, small mine operation in Zambia. Now, this is a case of neoliberalism because um, Column, Column Coal Mine actually had been closed for a long time. And then it was privately sold to uh, to the Shi brothers. And uh, actually, at the very beginning, it promised to be a very losing um, business uh, because you know quality of coal there is not very good, and the the, the mine has been shut down for so long, uh, such a long time, and uh, uh, and. Uh, Zambia could easily get high-quality coal from across the border in Zimbabwe, etc. So in this case, you have a private small coal mine business and operating in a very sort of free trade uh, environment. And uh, so in, in some ways, it promises to uh, to be a losing business. And when the owners try not to lose, it's based on super exploitation of the workers. And I say that this is actually a tip. Uh, this is a case of neoliberalism because you would see similar things in uh, elsewhere in the world. Whenever you have these kind of small mines uh, operating on this kind of basis, you have the case similar also in China. Um, in in no, some of the northern provinces in China, coal mines when they were privately owned, um, you know, fat- uh, fatality is high. The working conditions is very bad. And uh, kind of similar in many ways. But, but, uh, but with the Chinese, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but you said specific neoliberalism is certainly an outlook. And in, in many ways, it, it, you know, what's the connection between neoliberalism and, say, racist assumptions embedded in racial hierarchy? Mm. Well, neoliberalism, in the, uh, from our perspective, explains um, the operation of the mine, why the government would want to sell the mine and to have it privately owned. Uh, so in, in this case, um, in Zambia is very much of a neoliberal economy. Now, the question is, uh, the problem is not seen as a, as a problem of neoliberalism. But it has been, in a discourse, appear represented as a case of Chineseness. So all the bad things being associated with the mine uh, has been you know, traced or being represented as something Chinese. So in that sense, it is, the, the mine has become racialized. And the bad practices in the mine has become racialized. Now, there is a racial hierarchy here because in Zambia, um, as a post-colonial country, uh, there is a har- racial hierarchy which had been expressed by Zambian elites. Uh, for example, by uh, Guy Scott himself, um, who is a, a, a vice president of Zambia. And uh, he said that, uh, you know, the, um, the whites are bad and the... Indians are worse, and the Chinese are the worst. So the, there is already pre-existing racial hierarchy, um, and the rep- representation and racialization of column coal mine itself fits into this kind of racial hierarchy that's already being established. And uh, other people in Zambia can also tell you that because of the colonial experience, it has been believed by many people that only white people can properly run a mine, and Chinese and Indians, they're shopkeepers, how can they run the mine properly? So when you hear news that a Chinese mine is going to trouble, then that also fits into this colonial era or colonial, um, it's a, a colonial legacy um, of racial hierarchy. I might just add here that one of the very common tropes 
uh, with regard to Chinese historically uh, in the Western world and also in, in Africa has been that Chinese are cruel people. Uh, that is, that they are unwilling to be enlightened in terms of their interaction with other people and are quite willing to super exploit them and oppress them uh, in a, the cruelest possible fashion. And actually, uh, a lot of Western media, when they reported about the Column Coal Mine, or they reported about other mines in Zambia, would find some Zambian uh, who would make such a statement and report it. Uh, that is, it was something which I think in the minds of uh, Western journalists is um, readily believable. That is, that Chinese um, would disregard life and would not have the same degree of uh, consciousness of the preciousness of life, the same uh, interest in corporate social responsibility, etc., as uh, Western companies have. I mean, I would actually probably take it even further. And, uh, you know, it, to, to my mind, it also, it's, it, it plays in, in, from a Western press perspective, it plays into, into perceptions of Africans as well, where on the one hand, you know, kind of the, you can, it's a slightly 19th century, you know, view of, of Africa where you can throw at the savagery of these people. But then at the same time, you can also position yourself as somehow in, in kind of socialist solidarity with them, you know, kind of so. I, so you were quoting um, people from, I think, uh, a German reporter um, who said, "Well, you know, kind of this is what you get when you treat your workers so terribly." Obviously, obviating the bad treatment of workers at Western, you know, kind of institutions in Zambia, but also at the same time, in you know, kind of making this kind of jump, which is like, well, we're actually you know, in, in league with these oppressed African people and at the same time making it then impossible to actually question the actual choices that took place on that day. You know, kind of why, why, for example, the workers then decided to burn down the workers' housing that the Chinese company was by, was building, for example. You know, all, all of these, it, it, it kind of flattens the, the, the complexities of, of African, you know, kind of decision-making as well, I think. Yeah, but if Barry and in Cobus, if I can play the devil's advocate here, um, you know it's confusing to hear what both of you are saying because on the one hand, I, I do there's other sides and other perspectives to it, but on the other hand, the Chinese are, are very well known both in China and elsewhere for not respecting environmental regulations, for not respecting labor policies. Um, there are you know, and again, this is it's hard to generalize across every company, um, but. One of the problems in Africa for many Chinese companies, and you've detailed this in some of your research, is that a lot of Chinese don't understand local culture, local customs, or the legal system in, in these countries. So what they do is they bring their own labor standards, which oftentimes are far more demanding than what the local country um, is accustomed to. So if there's smoke, is there any fire there? Well, there are instances, of course, of Chinese companies, like other companies, which uh, ignore local labor law, environmental standards, etc. Uh, of course, if you look at the history of uh, mining in recent years in Zambia, as an example, you'll find there has been strike after strike against company after company. And the workers have a variety of complaints some of which relate to wages, of course, but others of which relate to working conditions. And it's not been the Chinese mines, by any means, 
who are the only targets uh, for the mine workers' unions. Uh, there certainly are other mines owned by companies from the West, particularly, uh, including Canada, Switzerland, and other countries, uh, that have seen repeated strikes. So that's some indication um, that Chinese companies can't be singled out as imposing particularly bad uh, working standards or uh, even particularly bad uh, wages uh, in comparison to the profitability of the various mines. I, I think also um, it's fairly recent that Chinese companies have gone abroad. And uh, while it's true, of course, that any company that goes abroad is going to have as its first point of reference its own accumulated experience in its home country. But we've seen a pattern of Chinese companies uh, gradually localizing in their new settings in Africa. And actually, we're working on a book manuscript right now on the localization of Chinese enterprises in Africa. So they do have an ability to adapt. But nevertheless, they are um, profit-making, or pro at least intending to make profit companies. So they're capitalists like other capitalists, and they have a lot uh, in common, therefore, uh, with the other companies that are operating uh, in the same industries and environments. But I think in terms of media representation, oftentimes uh, it's much easier uh, because of the prior prejudices against um, Chineseness uh, to single out um, Chinese. Well, for example, um, you might have a case of uh, other, you know, uh, foreign companies committing the same kinds of, uh, similar kinds of uh, malpractices. But when it comes to a Chinese company, then it's, the Chineseness is always noted. Uh, and similar in Zambia newspaper, when a, when a foreigner, uh, say a British uh, or a white South African committing some kind of uh, some kind of practice uh, in a country that's noted by the media, then the headline will read "Expat does this." But it will happen when if the same thing were to be done by Chinese, then it's always reported as "Chinese does this." Uh, so you can see how the Chineseness operates uh, for the media uh, that it, it, it's oftentimes singled out. And uh, you might remember that was it a year ago, two years ago, in South Africa was a British, um, it's a British mine. Marikana massacre. Right. Uh, that, uh, in fact, the, the labor conditions were so bad that uh, the workers struck and there was a massacre. And uh, in most of the reports, the British, um, the Britishness was never actually mentioned. Hmm. Um, and, in fact, in our uh, online discussion, somebody, in fact, pointed out that if this were to be a Chinese mine, the headline would scream, you know, Chinese company does this. So there is a sort of this kind of a media discursive prejudice against a, a racialization of, of practices, even though across the board, most of the companies uh, have problems. Um, how do you think Chinese companies, but also the Chinese government should deal with this? I mean, what, what we've seen in so far, you know, in, as as these these kind of scandals pop up, um, you know, kind of you, you repeatedly find a situation where the Chinese government seems almost caught unawares that they they don't really seem to have a, a communication strategy in place, even though these perceptions have been around for hundreds of years. 
um, they must clearly, they must surely know that that they're up against some like kind of, you know, kind of unkind stereotypes about Chinese people in the world. Like, you know, how how do you think they should? Why don't you think that they really have a, a kind of a communication strategy in place in order to deal with this kind of thing? And do you think they're getting better at as it, as it's going along? I think they are getting better. Uh, one indication of uh, the fact that they may be getting better, at least in some places and at some times, is the recent uh, incident, which I'm sure both of you are familiar with, uh, that had to do with the restaurant in Nairobi, Kenya, mm. which engaged in racial discrimination against uh, Kenyan customers, uh, black Kenyan customers, who were uh, not allowed into the restaurant after 5 p.m. unless they were known to the owner. Um, the Kenyan government took action against this restaurant, actually closed it down. And the Chinese government, uh, that is the um, embassy uh, of China in Kenya, issued a statement strongly condemning what the restaurant owners had done and actually uh, almost threatening the uh, restaurant owners and uh, perhaps the Chinese community more generally that if they committed acts like that in the future, then there would be some very serious consequences for them. And I think this kind of uh, stern approach has been taken in some places uh, and at some times, uh, but it hasn't been a consistent policy. Perhaps um, the Chinese government is moving in the direction of having a more consistent policy in that regard, that is to take in hand um, and take action about any kind of incident which they think will reflect poorly on uh, Chinese people generally. Even if you look at what happened with the Column coal mine, uh, going back to that, uh, in October of 2010, when the shooting happened that you referred to earlier, where 13 uh, Zambian miners were wounded when uh, there was a mob attack against supervisors at the mine, uh, the Chinese government did in fact take action then. They called together um, the Shu brothers, the owners of the mine, and told them that they had to pay compensation to the miners, they had to improve working conditions, they had to raise salaries, and they had to conduct a public self-criticism, not only before Zambians, including the Zambian workforce, but also before an assemblage of all of the Chinese companies in Zambia, which they did. Uh, and I think that was an, another example of the Chinese government uh, acting quickly to try to change perceptions about um, what Chinese are like and the way that they conduct themselves. In fact, we talked to the Chinese ambassador about this, and he told us that anytime anybody with a Chinese face does anything wrong, regardless of whether they are a private citizen or work for a state-owned enterprise, regardless of whether they're a Chinese citizen or an Australian citizen, uh, nevertheless, uh, the whole Chinese community will be affected by it. And therefore, uh, the Chinese government must always take action uh, when there needs to be some kind of correction. Ian, they've been doing that as well with Chinese tourists who've been misbehaving on, on airplanes and tourism overseas who've you know, in, in, the, in the South China Morning Post, it seems almost a weekly affair that some Chinese tourist throws, you know, hot noodles in the face of a, uh, 
uh, of a flight attendant and then gets punished severely at home. Passports are confiscated, can't travel again. So they seem to be doing this on the micro level as much on the macro level. Um, I'd like to ask you both just in closing here. Um, kind of what your what your prognosis is. President Lungo, for his part, has said he will not hesitate to close the mine if the Shoe Brothers don't live up to their promises to kind of improve environmental safety and uh, kind of the overall track record of the mine. Uh, so based on all the work that you've done, what you know now, what you know about President Lungo and the little that we know now, um, what's your short-term and long-term prognosis for the mine? Hyrong, let me start with you. Well, I, I think it, it's going to be, I, I foresee uh, more difficulty actually along the line uh, because uh, the basic situation of the mine hasn't been, the conditions for the business hasn't been improved. Um, so it's actually difficult to see how it can actually make uh, profit without uh, really still exploiting heavily uh, the workers and also probably also neglecting many of the benefits that they should be given. Yeah, I would add that um, this mine, uh, even with $50 million of additional investment, is going to be a marginal mine because the quality of the coal is not great. Uh, Actually, the quality of the coal, not just at Column Coal Mine, but at the other principal coal mine uh, in Zambia, Mamba Collieries, is actually quite inferior to the coal across the border in Zimbabwe from Huangye. Uh, so if people want to get uh, coal, uh, which they can rely upon, uh, they will probably still continue to get it mainly from Zimbabwe. Um, also, the market for coal is fairly limited in Zambia. And the Column Coal Mine never was able to turn a profit practically. The only time when it made any money was when the Mamba coal mine was shut down as a result of strikes. So uh, the Mamba coal mine, by the way, was owned then by the Zambian government itself. So the Column coal mine lost money most of the time because they couldn't uh, construct a decent customer base. Mostly they supplied coal to cement companies, to uh, breweries, and um, in their initial years, to as you mentioned earlier uh, in the show, and initially to uh, some copper mines. But the copper mines uh, got coal mostly for their smelters. But their smelters have been converted from using coal to using electricity. So the market's highly limited. That means that it's going to really be touch and go for the owners again. That means also, I think, that they will be highly resistant to wage increases and there will be uh, additional struggles at that mine, as there are at many mines in Zambia. The mine workers uh, in Zambia have a long history of militancy, and uh, they know that they are, they are exploited. They know that, at least potentially, the owners of the mines can make a lot of money uh, when the prices are high for their commodities. So the mine workers will continue to struggle. And I think uh, the owners will continue to fight against them. And that means that it won't be smooth sailing hereafter. Interesting. Well, it's, it's fascinating to me that a mine that is so, as you're describing it, largely insignificant in the broader context 
yet still has captured the imagination of so many people. But it seems like going forward, uh, this will not be the end of the discussion about the Column coal mine because it does seem like it's going to encounter problems. Uh, Barry Salman is a professor of social science at uh, the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. And Yen Hai Rong is an anthropologist in the Department of Applied Social Sciences at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Thank you both so much for joining us today on the show. You're welcome. Kobus, if people want to stay on top of what we're doing here at the China Africa Project, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? Uh, Our Facebook page is a good place to start. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there you'll also see a button to sign up to our our newsletter, our weekly newsletter, which is basically a a kind of a curated mix of of the top headlines of the week in the China Africa space. And um, if you want to contact me particularly, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. If you'd like to follow this podcast, uh, one great place to do it is over on the China File website at chinafile.com. That's the Asia Society's amazing uh, China-specific Sino, you know, Sino geek uh, website with all things Chinese, Chinese politics, economics, diplomacy, and our, web, and our podcast is there. And of course, you can always just find us uh, on iTunes and just look for the China Africa Project. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. 